Welcome to another episode of Liquid Assets, where we talk about the business of water. Liquid Assets is a podcast about the intersection of business, policy, and technology, all viewing water as the as the central vertex of this Venn diagram. Today, we have James Winter, who is a water security and hygiene advisor at USAID. Hi, my name is James Winter, and I'm a water security, sanitation, and hygiene advisor at USAID and the Bureau for Global Health. What's up, James? How are you doing? Hi, Rami. Good to be here. Yeah, tell us a little bit more about yourself, you know, who you are, what you're up to. Yeah, go for it. The mic's yours. Well, thank, thanks for having me again, Ravi. It's great to be here. As you mentioned, I'm a water security, sanitation, and hygiene advisor at USAID. I work in the Bureau for Global Health. Right now, I'm focused on a bunch of things. There are things around rural pipe water supply, cholera, cholera as an epidemic disease, water utility reform, and climate finance, things like that. Going back a little bit, though, my background was originally in, in applied math, environmental science, environmental engineering. Right after undergrad, I had an opportunity to work at a small NGO in El Salvador called Glasswing. They're no longer really a small NGO. They've, they've grown quite, quite rapidly, which is credit to some of the amazing work that they've been doing. After working in El Salvador for about a year, I, I started working in management consulting in, in Boston and later in London for about three years, doing some work on corporate strategy, pricing, mergers, and acquisitions. But that was all a bit of a precursor to what I, what I viewed for a long time as plan A. I really was fascinated by environmental engineering. For a long time, I've, I've been fascinated by water, water quality, then eventually water supply, and now water security. Water is a big tent. But around 2015, I got a chance to pursue a PhD at Stanford University in environmental engineering. I worked on a mix of hard engineering things, things like groundwater, contaminant remediation, organic reaction chemistry. But my research was always focused on uh, international development. So specifically, in my case, rural water quality and supply in Zambia. My field site was in southern Zambia, and I spent about two years on and off there looking at the transition that households were making from what we call off-premises water supplies. So this is something like a hand pump that you see in those photographs, or a well, just a hand dug or a machine dug well, what happens when you transition from that to a piped water supply? And in this case, we're not really talking about piped water the way you and I know it, but more piped into someone's yard, something that would be five, 10 meters away from their house, rather than having indoor plumbing. So looking at that transition, something that fascinated me was the international development community propelled by the UN Sustainable Development Goals and, and some, other, some other transitions in, in the sector, was, was looking to move more from these off-premises to these on-premises water supplies. But we didn't have a good idea of what the benefits would be. Obviously, you and I can banter back and forth about, oh, what do you think is going to happen when a household transforms how, how they access water? But I was, really in, in, I was really interested in developing some empirical evidence for that. So I was looking at the health and economic impacts, specifically on women and girls, that this transition from a hand pump to an on-premises pipe water system was taking. After that, it was, it was a pretty easy jump into, into USAID. As I mentioned, I, I get a chance to work on their global water portfolio, water and sanitation specifically. I primarily work in, in Sub-Saharan Africa. I, I pitch in on, on some South Asia projects, but most of my work is in Zambia, Senegal, Ghana, Benin, and, and a little bit in Malawi. So I'll pause there. I don't, I don't want to monopolize all the time, but that's a bit of my background. No, that's, oh my gosh, that's, that's so, that's so amazing, right? Because I think you really hit the spectrum, both in terms of experiences, geography, like 
going from public to private, you know, you have, you went to Stanford. Let's kind of piece a few of those things together, right? I think you started off with, start off with applied math and applied engineering. Walk us through, like, I, I think what's really interesting to see is this through line, right? You were in applied math, applied engineering. How does that kind of fare itself into the work that you did, you know, in, in, in Zambia, the stuff they're doing with USA today? Do you see any sort of connection with kind of what you did there and like how that relates to what you're doing now? Yeah, I wish I could say that there was this grand master plan, but I would say it's it's more likely that it or more accurately characterizes essentially being on parallel tracks. When I was 18 years old and deciding what to major in, I loved math. I continue to love math. I'm fascinated by it. Tragically, I'm not particular. I'm not supremely adept at it, but I think having a passion for it really helped. But then I always felt that it's what you do with math that that's really important and really impactful. So that led me into, into engineering. Environmental engineering was something that I was, that there was some appeal to because of its connection with, with water. So, and then unfortunately, to be honest, I, I, was drawn in, I was drawn to water for what I would now say with the benefit of year, uh, over a decade of experience in the sector, drawn into it for all the wrong reasons. I felt as 18, 19, 20 year old, well, it's easy enough to get clean water with water tablets, chlorination tablets, digging wells, we figured out in the United States, the science is there, how hard could it be? And you know, the, the, last, the last decade of my life has been showing me over and over again how hard it, how hard it truly can be. So <laughs> I, I, I'm sure that we'll, we'll dig into this a little bit more, but things like operations and maintenance, how do we, how do we maintain rural water assets? How do we change the behavior of people who might be accustomed to fetching or treating or storing water in a certain way to do it in a quote, healthier way that external actors are giving them this information? How, how do we manage that relationship? And yeah, I, yeah. So that, that was how I got my start really. I, I want to touch on something yeah. you just said, actually, you said you got into water for all the, for all the wrong reasons, but we're, well, well, like talk a little bit about that. What were what were the wrong reasons that you got into water? Yeah, so when I, I love mentoring younger students who are who are in undergraduate or graduate school. I love mm -hmm. mentoring young professionals. I do see a lot of this feeling of well, water is a relatively easy problem to solve. Why don't we do X? Why don't we just do X? I, I I would say that whatever sector you're in, there are young people coming up who say, why don't we just do X? And in, in the case of water, I think that there are, there are real, real complexities that some are on the physical and chemical side, water is very heavy. And then some of them are on the social and cultural side, water being viewed as a human, excuse me, water being viewed as a human right, water having certain cultural significance. So I think there's a certain naivete around how easy a problem water is to solve that leads people, idealistic people to get into it for what I would characterize as the wrong reasons, but at the same time, the sector is an incredibly kind and generous and to, to kind and generous sector. Uh, I was going to use a few other adjectives that maybe I have to walk back <laughs> later, but I, I, I've had just a wonderful experience with the people in, in the domestic and international water sector. And I, I think that by and large, people are, are really approaching it in the right way. Yeah, 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 definitely. And, and I think you, you touched on a really interesting point that comes down to like a to basically product development, right? It's, it's kind of like the product development ethos of yeah, yeah. you end up with this 
sort of ivory tower approach. I think you said this in the beginning, like me and you can banter on this podcast about what we think the best way of doing something is, but you kind of have to be there on the ground. And so, you know, and I think you mentioned this a few times of like operation maintenance, cultural, socioeconomic things. How do you change people's behavior from the kind of work that you've done in the last, you know, decade or so and, and the work that you're doing with USAID? How does that like product development mindset really really kind of come into play, right? I think you, you mentioned that a few times now, but what does that mean to really have boots on the ground and not have this naive, you know, naivete of, yeah, here's a cool idea that I'm sitting here with my notebook yeah. in the middle of my room trying to design. Yeah, yeah. I, I really like this connection that you're making with product development. I don't think that that is something that's commonly discussed, at least in those words in the international development field. You, you are coming from a very different side of this, very different side of, of the water the water industry or the water sector. I would say that Stanford is so deeply ingrained with Silicon Valley. There's a whole design school that I was able to take a class on product development, something that I feel very fortunate to, to have had access to, whereas most development professionals wouldn't, wouldn't have that kind of vocabulary to discuss it. And, and something that is particularly critical is something, something called user-centered design. This is now widely, widely applied across the product design design ecosystem and it's particularly critical when you when like you were saying are people designing these products in a lab somewhere that that aren't actually ready for prime time to ready ready to be deployed in the field i think something that we as a as an international development community struggled with particularly i'll be charitable and say a few a few decades ago but i would argue it's still continuing on on now is is this idea of well why don't we just drill wells and put in hand pumps? And then, you know, we'll hand it over to the community and communities will then take ownership of that asset. Should be fine. And it's just such a more complicated process that I think there's not sufficient appreciation for. And so from the product design side, you would you would then start thinking about, okay, we have to, we have to not only think about the capital expenditures and the installation costs, but then what's the sustainability approach? And I'll just speak for myself. If I have a large plumbing issue, I do not, I mean, now YouTube is, is, is quite helpful, but most of the time I'm going to call a plumber. Yeah. If I have yeah. an electricity issue, most of the time I'm going to call an electrician because if I try and fix it, I might actually make things dramatic. And in the development community, there is an approach called community management. And this was an international NGO or even government would come in, drill an asset, build an asset, and then hand it over to the community. And with the expectation that with maybe two, three, four hours of training delivered over a couple of weeks, people would be able to manage a hand pump, which reasonable people can disagree about how complicated of a mechanism that is. I, with my multiple degrees in engineering, cannot take apart and, and reassemble. <laughs> and the expectation that when it breaks down every couple of years, that someone would be able to remember their training from three years ago to rebuild this hand pump and buy the correct spare part. It, when you say it out loud, it sounds ridiculous. Yeah. But yeah. That, that was the dominant paradigm for decades in international development, especially specifically in water and something that... I think that we're, we're starting to move past, which, for, for which I'm very grateful. And I, I think if people had had a life cycle product design 
worldview a little bit earlier, I think I think we would have come up come to that pretty pretty clear conclusion a little bit earlier. Yeah, 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 entirely. And 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 you said kind of for the last few decades, is that have you seen it changing as of recent, or is it? Do you think it's still the same? It's definitely not still the same. It's definitely not still the same. I think that there are small organizations that are behind the times and are led by you know, led by some level of dogma rather rather than the science. But speaking for USAID, we're we're the second largest water water funder for international development in the world after after Japan after JICA, and in terms of just government taking aside places like the World Bank and UNICEF, and and I, I can speak about. USAID's pro- approach on this, it's all about sustainability. It's its not about drilling and moving on. We, we won't, we'll refuse to pay for programs that, that do that. That's, that's not something that's in our, in our approach toolkit anymore. So that is, that's transformative in and of itself. And, and I certainly don't want to take credit for that. I joined USAID only a couple of years ago, but whereas this has been underway for, for years, I would say what I'm describing is definitely the prevailing wisdom of the 90s and, and early 2000s and can even further back. And yeah, I, I, I definitely think the tides are changing. Still, which is actually always work to be done, but the tides yeah. are changing. Which is kind of funny you say that, right? I think because if you take this from a, even from like a corporate mindset, and if we're, if we're going to think along this trend of product development and, you know, like the Stanford D school and kind of IDEO, you see that even with large corporations, right? In, in the 90s and 80s, and even up until the 2000s of this very heavy top-down approach of if upper management says X, Y, Z, then it's just going to trickle down and kind of, the employees have to kind of do that. Whereas you're seeing a lot of tech companies and even, even newer companies that are not in tech, just taking this, this PLG or product-led growth sort of design structure that's like, let's put something out there, have the users basically try it out. And then if it doesn't work, you iterate backwards or forwards to figure out what the right way of doing it is. And I see kind of parallels around this, you know, drill, drill and walk away, or, Hey, here's our mandate. Everybody's going to do this to a little bit more of an iterative and customer centric, consumer centric, user centric design that really gets the, gets the product or the idea that's out there into, into the user's hands. Totally. So like, yeah. what, do you have any tactical kind of changes that have happened that, that you can like talk about on how the drill and move on is not done today? Like what is, is there more of a training regimen or do you kind of like drill alongside with the, with the folks that you're, you're helping out? Like, what is, what does that look like? Yeah. Great question. Great question. I would say that the approaches are changing across a couple of different axes. So like I was saying with, with community management, this, I think we now refer to it as unsupported community management. So this is truly the, we're going to hand it over with four hours of training and then move on and move on to the next village or wherever, wherever we want to do the intervention. And it's now moving t- some, towards something that there, there's a lot more support, whether on when one end of the pendulum, this is, this is unsupported community management. On the other end is something like a rural water utility. And somewhere in the middle, we have things like circuit riders. So circuit riders is, is an approach that actually the National Rural Water Association in, in the U.S. started in the 1980s and continues today, where you have technical experts who, who are moving in a circle, moving in, moving in a circuit, providing technical, assist, technical assistance to different water utilities or different water, water points that, that they come along and, and provide that in, on a regular schedule. You can have things like emergency hotlines where 
there's one technician who's responsible for say 40 or 50 hand pumps in a particular area. They have a really good supply chain to spare parts. They have access to transport and fuel and they have a phone and they act as a business hours or 24 hour hotline for, for water service repairs. So those are some of the, some of the new paradigms that are being rolled out. And even in really rural areas of, for example, Uganda, there are, there are a couple companies, Everflow and Wave that are, that are working on this approach and with, with really, really good success. One of the challenges I would say is this costs money. The reason people did community management was, you know, it might've been because they thought it was really going to work, but it's also because it's a lot cheaper. You, mm -hmm. don't, you don't have to invest in supply chain and a motorbike and fuel and labor costs. You, you don't invest in that. It's, sure. it, it's a lot cheaper. And, and payment for water. I, I, I touched on this earlier about the sociocultural aspect of water and some of the valence around water as a good that is a little bit different than electricity, for example, and a little bit different than fertilizer, for example. Water has historically been maybe not free, but in some, some places quite close to free in the sense that surface water, we use that term to, to talk about rivers or lakes or streams, things like that. Surface water is often free to access. Rainwater is often free to access. And even in the 90s and 2000s, when people were drilling boreholes, international NGOs were often providing that water for free, not even with any money required for the capital expenditures. So that, that view combined with the human right to water that's been enshrined in, in some national constitutions like in South Africa, makes it somewhat complicated to design cost recovering operation domains and sustainability operations. So, in, and to compound this, rural households tend to be relatively low income. They might have seasonal or irregular cash flow. And the, the final piece of this is around governance and government in that public tax collection can be a lot more limited. So for example, there was, there was a great study that Anna Leiby did out of CU Boulder that looked at the Boulder, Colorado water utility and compared it to two water utilities in Ethiopia and Cambodia. In Boulder, 41% of costs were, were borne by households. So those are tariffs or water bill and 56% were paid by taxes. In Ethiopia and Cambodia, I don't think you'll be too surprised to hear this, but in Ethiopia, it was 76% paid by households, and in Cambodia, it was 100% paid by households. So you're starting to see some of the challenges with economic, economically sustainable model that is being funded entirely or, or mostly, primarily by households, rather than being complemented by tax revenue or industrial and commercial revenue. Wow, that's like so interesting. I mean, it, it totally makes sense that, you know, that these, these governments compared to Boulder, Colorado, obviously wouldn't be able to, you know, provide for that. But I think your, your analogy you made early on of water is this free asset, or we thought of it as this free asset before, right? Because like you said, you could take surface water, you could take rainwater. When you, when you now look at the playing cards, right. And with these numbers that you said with 40, 41 or 41% in in Boulder, Colorado, being paid by by households, and you know upwards of fifty percent being paid by the government. When when you kind of go out there alongside the 
the kind of socioeconomic piece, the fact that these folks that you're working with aren't, you know, the wealthiest. And then compounded on top of that, you end up with a government that really can't fund or, or use taxes to pay for this sort of thing. How do you build a sustainable model, right? Because you've been, you've been saying sustainability up and up until the beginning, but like, what does that, what does that look like today? Because it is at the very root of it, again, this free asset that you're now trying to monetize. Yeah. And it, th- thank you for that, for that, for that question, Riley. I, I, do, I don't want to be doom and gloom because there, there is so much exciting work and very progressive work that's going on in this. So I think it, it comes down to two things. One, higher levels of higher levels of service lead to higher willingness to pay. And two, access to private finance being something that has historically not been leveraged, but is now really starting to enter the fold in a real way. So starting with higher levels of service and willingness to pay, when people have access to, let's say, a low quality water supply situation, a piped water scheme that's intermittent and gives low quality water, or a hand pump, people don't want to pay for that. It's not shocking that people are not interested in paying for bad service where if there's a breakdown, it takes weeks to repair. Are you going to pay your monthly fee if course not your level of service? So yeah. what, we're, what we're starting to see is both from the government level and from the international NGO level, a movement towards higher levels of service. And especially with convenience and water quantity, this is strongly associated in the research literature and the gray literature from, from just practitioners, that this is leading to higher willingness to pay. People pay for good service. And of course. You, yeah. when you generate revenue, you can keep it. You can keep it moving. You can have higher levels of sustainability. And at least to this virtuous cycle where people are grateful for a high quality level of service and people are willing to pay for that. I would say that as we transition to piped water networks, this virtuous cycle is it's easier to, to kick off because it is almost always a higher level of convenient service. It's easier to chlorinate and filter because you're generally doing it from a centralized location. They're easier to meter so you can charge people in a fair and equitable way. And the, the huge explosion in smart metering that are internet, internet connected allows a lot more sustainable revenue collection. I would say the jury is still a little bit out on whether rigorous smart metering on a per use basis is the path forward. I don't want to say, I, I'm still waiting to, to hear uh, from a few from a few studies on, on that, but I think that movement towards higher levels of service leading to higher levels of willingness to pay is really galvanizing sustainable water services, even in very rural areas. And then the second piece is when you are barely breaking even, only household tariffs are being used to fund it and, and there's limited public taxation, Getting capital to expand services really is really difficult. In California, when I was living there, we voted on resolutions, ballot initiatives all the time to sell bonds to raise money for water utilities. In Kampala, in Lusaka, that's that's rare, if not impossible. But something that USAID and other development partners like the World Bank are are working on is helping utilities raise funds from from commercial finance and, and other private sources of finance. So think like banks especially local banks. Because when you think about higher borrowing money in an international currency, there are some real challenges, especially recently, given how strong the dollar is. By doing some capacity building and training on both the water utility side and also on the bank's local bank side, what we're hoping is to, to allow these water utilities to raise money from local financial institutions and local currency 
to expand their operations and just have that type of working capital and capital to invest that they don't they haven't historically had access to. And I, and I want to give a, a, a brief plug for a program I'm working with at, at USAID, WashFin2, Wash Finance. And it's working in, in a couple of countries in, in Ghana, India, and Kenya right now and hoping to expand to, to a bunch of other countries in, in South Asia, Southeast Asia, and Sub-Saharan Africa of helping water utilities raise that financing to allow them to expand services both in urban and rural areas. Wow, that's... That's super cool. And the, I mean, that, that makes so much sense, right? Because if you think about the parallels of, like you just said, in California, we voted on bonds to raise capital to basically fix infrastructure systems. Two things. Actually, I want to I go back. Well, one, one really quick thing. What was the program called that you had said? Washington to Wash? Washington. It's, it stands for Wash Finance, but it's Wash, ah. W-A-S-H, and then F-I-N. And it's actually Washington the second iteration of this program. So Washington to. Cool. Really awesome. I want to touch on the on the first point around services. I think you you raise a really interesting point, right? Like nobody wants to pay for for bad service, like across the board. If if you you know have a, a bad service in in buying clothes all the way to your water to to whatever it is, right? You just don't want yeah absolutely crappy service, right? That's like that's not cool. And so if you can increase the service level of 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 the actual you know water distribution or whatever that might be. That kind of touches upon the point that you said earlier, right? Like the, on the work that you're doing of taking things that were water pumps or off premise and bringing those into piping. You had made an interesting distinction in the beginning where you're not bringing the pipe into the home, but it's it's in the yard. Can you like can you talk about that a little bit? I was I, I was a little bit confused on kind of what that means. Yeah, yeah, of course. So I think the the three the three paradigms that you can think about is you have to walk 20, 30 minutes to the water source. It's shared. You you share it with a whole village, a whole community. And that's what we would call an off-premises, off, yeah, off-premises water source. Then there's something on the other end of the spectrum. It's what you and I have right now. We go to the bathroom, we turn on the tap, the water comes out, and then it flows into a plumbing system that then ejects that wastewater that's treated somewhere else. In the middle is it's somewhere just kind of outside your door. So this analogy just came to me. I currently am incredibly grateful that I have in-unit laundry, in-unit in washer-dryer. But for most of my life, I have had to share one with, I had to walk maybe to the first floor or to the basement to do my laundry. And then in other times in my life, I've had to go to a laundromat. Those are kind of the three levels that, that we're seeing. So with this, what I'm talking about with the, with the piped water in Zambia, it's typically right outside their door, maybe five meters away. They're walking and it's a tap. So it's still a reticulated piped water network, but it's not coming inside their home. It's coming just outside their door. And it's usually perhaps shared with the neighbor two neighbors, mm -hmm. something where everyone is within five to 20 meters walking, which is you know, 15, 50 feet or so. Not, sure. not, not too long of a journey compared to walking 500 meters or so, half a kilometer to, to access water. Yeah, no, that's, a, that's such a great analogy, right? So you're taking, you're taking the laundromat and you're, you're, not, you're not building an in-unit washer dryer, but you're, yeah. you're going to have a shared building washer dryer that you have to go downstairs or you know, just up across the street for. Yeah. Um, really cool. And then you, you raise an interesting point around payments, right? Because the whole point around here is like you just mentioned that, that kind of bolder example of how do you actually collect money to make sure that the system is upkept and obviously maintenance and operations. You had mentioned the, the smart metering that's, that's coming about now is, and you know, like you said, the, 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 the jury's not out yet on if it's successful or not, but are you seeing any interesting 
things around payment methodology. Like I could, you know, there's been a lot of stuff around M-Pesa when I was working in impact yeah. investing in India, all this stuff with Bitcoin and crypto. But I mean, you know, and I, I think gas costs and just the, the energy cost of running crypto is kind of huge. I don't even know if it's useful for this example, but like it, it seems like there's a whole spectrum or a whole world of things that happen now once you can actually start charging for water. Yeah, I will say it's incredible how much African payment technologies, specifically coming out of Kenya with M-Pesa, are just leaps and bounds ahead of what the United States is, is seemingly huh. capable of. The, the ability to do any kind of mobile payment, any kind of bill paying, any kind of peer-to-peer -peer with frictionless mobile payments has been around in Kenya for, I think, 20 years. It's it's sort of yes. unbelievable. On, on touch on phones, not smartphones. Anyway, that that aside, yeah, I think that the the payment paradigms are are changing. It, it's to a certain extent, yes, there's still cash that's being that's being passed back and forth for for different services. Barter economy exists in hyper rural situations, but yeah, I think that the the proliferation of mobile money makes a lot of these transactions, online transactions, so so much easier. The point that I wanted to make about smart meters, and and I'd actually be interested in in getting your educated lay view on this. So something that is starting to starting to become a model in the electricity sector is pay as you go. So you pay, and then I don't know if you're familiar with these, you can usually see your meter up on the wall and it'll say how many kilowatt hours we have left. You put 10 bucks into it, you have some number of kilowatt hours. And as you go, it actually decreases over time. Mm -hmm. And then, so you've always prepaid for it. Rather than what I do currently in Washington, DC, I post pay. I use all the electricity I want, and then they send me a bill, and then I pay. And those are two different models. And so in water, we're starting to see a lot more of prepayment rather than postpayment. And this is something to decrease arrears, increase payment on time, things like that. From your perspective, do you think that pay-as-you-go in water would, it, would affect how much water people are using rather than comparing it to postpay? You know, it's, it's kind of funny. I, I, I'm, I'm actually drawing an analogy to cell phone usage, right? You have like two different cell phone models and, and you yeah. see this in, in, in the U.S. You have Boost, Boost Mobile, which is a pay-as-you-go thing. You, you top up so many gigabytes of data that you can use and so many minutes that you can call. Or you have, you know, an AT&T unlimited plan that's a certain fixed amount. And then if you go over, you go ahead and pay an overage for that. You know, I, I think it's a little bit of a two-sided coin because on the on the Boost Mobile side, they end up making more per gigabyte, right, of, of data transmission than does than does an AT&T because an AT&T can bulk it, but they end up having volume because they're selling a bunch of these plans that are monthly in nature. But the but the per cost for for Boost Mobile for the for the end users all obviously higher because you're kind of paying as you go. But the the kind of beauty of it is you end up with this sort of economics of these top-up plans, right? And so you can then top up on a, on a kind of lower basis or a, or a more larger basis where you get economies of scale, depending on if I want, you know, 10 gigabytes or one gigabyte, I'll pay, you know, a buck for a gigabyte if I just get one, yeah. or I'll maybe get some sort of a discount for 10. I'll pay $9 for that. Yeah. In terms of usage, what I've, what I've noticed in a kind of to your question on a pay-as-you-go versus something that you pay post is that you actually end up being more mindful of your usage because you pay for a certain amount and then you see the the, yeah. the dial going down versus the other way around where you just get the bill at the end of the month. And so that would kind of be my you know initial take at what I think the psychology would be.
Yeah, and you know, there's no right or wrong answer. I think the the jury is very much still out. If any of your listeners know what the answer is, please, they they should they should definitely reach out to, to to us about it. I agree that there's a there's definitely a psychological component of paying with cash versus paying with a credit card. That's been well studied. And one of my concerns is that if we move very far in the direction of everything is smart meter, the common idea is you have an ATM card or a token, a physical token or a digital token, and you swipe it every time you want water. Is that going to affect how, how people approach the water point? Is it, is it viewed in a different way? I saw one study, it was very small, and, and I won't name the provider because I think they were doing a, a great job on the project, but they installed pipe water points that were again, maybe 10 meters away from people's houses, they fitted them with these smart meters and they saw almost no usage, almost no usage out of this brand new pipe water system that was convenient and high quality. People were unwilling to take that small couple of pennies hit for, for water attraction when they could go elsewhere for, for free water because you, you have this issue with, with water sources, with competing water sources all the time where there might be a stream or a lake, something seasonal, that can complement this engineered water solution. Sure. So it's something that it's something that I am actively thinking about. It's something where we always have to be careful about how the pendulum swings. Uh, if we're moving all the way towards these smart meters, how that affects water consumption. Because one of the goals that we have is, especially in areas that don't have acute water scarcity, which is most places, even in Sub-Saharan Africa, even in the Sahel, in the Sahel region, which is just south of, of the Sahara Desert, even in these areas, there's there's often not an acute water stress if you're able to access groundwater in addition to surface water. So we don't really want to encourage people to really be sucking themselves dry in the amount of water that they use. We want them to be using it for consumption, for cooking with clean water, for washing their hands more frequently, things like that. We, we, we want to be encouraging that. So it's something that's on my mind of one of the, one of the potential downsides of water technology. Yeah, 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 entirely. And I think that ties back to the kind of first conversation, you know, we were, we were having of there are unintended implications or unintended consequences of just kind of implementing these sort of solutions, you know, across the board. And, and like, we don't know how any of this stuff's really going to move. And it is kind of really interesting seeing how that does move forward. I think we do know that, you know, at the, at, at the root cause or the first principles of this is the, the largest killer around the world is through diarrhea and dysentery, right? Of which water is is the main vector and so if we could somehow make a nudge to move the needle away from that you know i think it does then obviously make moving the right direction versus versus the other but entirely i do think you raise a really interesting point which they talk about a lot at the d school actually too yeah yeah sure. the, the unintended consequence of technology the, the kind of piece, something that something that i'd be interested your thoughts are on you're you're very deeply entrenched in the water technology space and and are looking at, you're reading the same news stories I do about challenges in water access and water security. I, I'm curious what you think are some of the applications that, that you think of in, in terms of water technology for, for things around water access and water security. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It def, that's actually a great question. My, my previous history was actually in India, where I was an associate at a small venture capital fund. And part of actually what my company does outside of this podcast is we make water sensors to measure water chemistry. Mm -hmm. And one of the biggest things we actually noted was obviously water is used in a multitude of applications, right? It's used in agriculture. It's used in drinking water. It's used in swimming pools. 
And the initial baseline water parameters are a big indicator of what you need to do to treat the water to then actually use it for that particular purpose. And so my first actually piece always starts off with, do you know what the, what the quality of the water is? Do you know what the initial starting parameters of the water? What's the pH? What's the nitrates? What's the phosphates? So you can make sure to more efficiently grow your grapes or grow your wheat or grow your corn, because those also require a certain cycle and you'll put certain nutrients in the ground, whether it be organic or, you know, commercial fertilizers, which again, has its whole totally different implication. But I kind of always start off with the sensing side. And then once you can kind of understand that, then I would build the building blocks up from there of figuring out then how do you basically monetize it? How do you put in solutions to figure out how much you're using quality, quantity, and then kind of from there on forward. But uh, yeah, I always go back to sensing and, and water parameters at the very beginning. Yeah, it's interesting hearing that. And obviously your, your, your background is in water quality and especially water, water chemistry. And I think that... To, to the extent that I do water quality work, it's all around bacteriological work. And I'm sure you, more than anyone, understands the challenges of real-time in-situ bacteriological testing for water. But something that I've been more taken with in the last five years or so is, is, is more around the water security and, and water quantity science. So I think some of our, some of our interests and work are, are really good complements in, in some ways. In, in 2018, I was, I was living in Zambia at the time. And that was when Cape Town, South Africa was counting down to their day zero. Cape Town, for those who haven't visited, is a very beautiful, highly developed, very modern city. And they had gotten to the point where non-critical infrastructure, so school, not schools, not hospitals, but even households were starting to have their, their taps shut off and people were queuing up to, to fetch water. That was front page news in Zambia all the time. Zambia relies a lot on surface water, a lot on rain, rainfall for, for its water security. Also downstream of that is they rely a lot on hydropower. Both Zambia and Zimbabwe rely on Lake Kariba and Kariba Dam for, for much of their electricity. So we were having rolling blackouts all the time. I guess rolling blackouts is the wrong term. These were scheduled power cuts constantly for eight to 12 hours a day because of this lack of wow. rainfall and the lack of water security. And then subsequently, this was actually even more impactful for me personally. I was in Chennai in 2019. And summer, it was June or July of 2019, 120 degrees outside. And the monsoon rains were just a couple of weeks late, two, three weeks late. And they, had, they were trucking water down from Uttar Pradesh for a city of 11 million people every single day. Wow. And seeing that level of water insecurity just on a razor's edge for a city so large and, and so well-developed in, in many cases, India and, and Chennai in particular is engineered marvel and and to have have this type of tenuous access to to water was was very impactful for me in thinking about how water technology can can help address what what i really see as the defining problem for 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 us going forward in urbanization and demography over the next couple of decades and so returning to the to where on where on water technology i think that there, was a, there have been some really cool advances and, and some, some really promising advances to, to bring us back on, on the upswing rather than just being a bit of a downer is, is really focused on two things, reuse technology and, and remote sensing for, with, with water-based applications. So one, water reuse technology, both at the household and industrial level, I think is really interesting. Areas where you see this mostly on, on the West Coast in California and in Texas, where you take in wastewater and then you treat it to an extremely high level 
a high level of quality. And then you either put it right back into the drinking water system or you, you pump it into the ground where it, it can be used as a groundwater buffer in an aquifer and then is later extracted and processed for, for drinking. It can also be used for, for things like irrigation as a non-potable alternative that's still at a very high quality. That's at the household size mm-hmm. for, for drinking water. And then industrial. I was, I was reading this great article about the, the Bangladesh textile industry and how they're starting to use their, in some ways, toxic wastewater effluent streams. They're able to re- recycle those and reuse those for, for non-potable purposes and, and really reducing the amount of fresh water that they need to draw. Somewhere like Bangladesh, somewhere like Dhaka, this is particularly relevant because most of their water or a very large portion of their water is coming from groundwater. And you see this in places like, like the Gulf in Saudi Arabia, Central Valley, California, uh, Dhaka, Bangladesh. When you draw water from underground, it's these pores, these small pores that are filled with water and water cannot be compressed. It's viewed as an incompressible liquid. When that is drawn out, all of those sediments start to microscopically collapse on themselves. And if you Google USGS California photographs, you can see the Central Valley of California has dropped Sinking. elevation the size of a telephone pole. It's unbelievable. Oh my gosh. Haunting when you look at this. And somewhere like Dhaka is, is, I believe, already underwater in terms of its average sea level for a city of over 10 million people is has an average sea level of, of less than zero. So having that kind of resilience in a really prominent industry, textiles for, for Bangladesh is critically important. So that's on the reuse side. I'm really excited about that. There are some regulations yeah. coming out of India that are requiring all apartment buildings to have wastewater reuse. And then uh, at the risk of being long-winded, the, the remote sensing for precision agriculture. Agriculture represents 70% of all freshwater needs globally mm-hmm. and even more in, in some places. And being able to use remote sensing, readily available remote sensing for where do I need to water? How much do I need to water? Are there pests or are there challenges with particular crops in particular locations? That type of data that can be integrated into industrial scale agriculture, I think it's, is, has the potential to be a real game changer. That's huge. Can you, can you kind of double click into the, into the remote sensing around agriculture piece again? Like, so what do you, what kind of sensors do you think would be valuable there? You had mentioned, you know, where to water, what to water, would it be just like moisture content and kind of pests, I guess, or kind of what the, what the nutrients are, what, what is that? What does that look like? Yeah, for you? I don't want to get out over my skis in terms of my technical knowledge. About sure. this. this is something that I, I've seen a proliferation of remote sensing companies that in addition to using some of the commercially available or rather governmental things from the European space agency or NASA that are putting up these, these satellites that can be readily accessible. Sat- uh, yeah. The SWAT satellite was just launched by the U S government a couple couple months ago, which was very exciting. These smaller companies with places like Atlas and SpaceX being able to put up satellites for, for much cheaper are just throwing constellations yeah. of their own satellites that can don't need to be one size fit all like these big government satellites, but they're, they're putting up 15 satellites as part of a constellation that can gather all kinds of data about different, like you said, different, different water regimes, different areas where, where Need, places are being overwatered, even things like leak detection, where you're having different spigots being left on or becoming defective. So uh, I think that's particularly exciting as a complement to something like drip irrigation, which obviously we've talked into the ground over the last 20 years or so. And yeah, I, th- I think that this level of data is going to be something that commercial ag players are going to be able to leverage. And as water becomes more expensive and more 
more difficult to access and more costly to access, it's only going to become more important. Yeah, super interesting. Actually, I have an interview tomorrow with Ramsey from Series Imaging out of the oh, Bay Area, which actually does yeah, a very yeah. similar yeah. thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So pertinent, pertinent point because my next interview is actually with with series oh, imaging. Great. Well, I'm glad that I'm glad that your listeners are going to have a real expert on on this on this coming up. <laughs> awesome, cool. I I love this reuse and remote sensing. I'm going to have to definitely pull that out when we do when we do kind of talk about this. Awesome. We're coming up close to time, James. So the last question I always love to ask people are: Is there any interesting like book or TV show? It could even be like a Netflix show, whatever it is that has kind of really changed your outlook on water or just even in life, right? It doesn't have to even be water related, but anything that comes to mind? Mm, great question. I would say that a book that I really enjoyed, you can see it if you, if you have very good eyesight on, on my book, it's called Water. Back over there. Water by Stephen Solomon. I read this as a okay. sort of a test before I went to grad school. Do I really care enough about water to wade through this very thick book about water? And it's, it's very grand in scope. It goes from the various Chinese dynasties up to the modern day, intersecting with things like Cadillac Desert, which is that seminal work about California water. And it, it's grand in scope. I read it. I had it from the library. I decided I needed to buy it so I could have it on my bookshelf for, for times like this. That really gave me a much greater appreciation for, for the scope of, of the importance of water and how historically important it's been about how canal building and different irrigation systems have really governed some of the, some of the rise and fall of, of, of civilization seems like such a grand, such a grand term, but at least cities and towns. So that, that's something that I, I, I like to recommend to others. Cool. I'll definitely, I'll definitely have to check it out and we'll make sure to spotlight it on the blog as well. Yeah. Well, awesome, James. Thanks again for the time. This has been super insightful and a lot of fun. I think We'll definitely need to do a re-up as you, as you go out for more projects and you see more interesting things. I'd love to, I'm actually thinking about having this thing called the, called the drip campaign. It's still a working name, yeah. but a kind of a, kind of a re-up with the, with the folks that we've interviewed to see kind of what they're up to and what new, what new things are out there in the world of water. But for all of these, those of you out there, this has been another episode of Liquid Assets. You can find us wherever you listen to your podcast. That can be on Spotify, Apple Music, Google Play. And thanks again for listening and until the next episode.